All right, if you guys would all turn to John chapter 13, that's where our text of scripture is at for today. So um, normally what I would have you do is once you get there, stand for the reading of scripture and we go through it. And I think that is important to show our reverence and and honor to the word of God. Um, But I want to do things a little differently today. This, for many of you, is a very familiar text and that you've heard many times before. But what I want you to do as we approach this text is try to hear it with new eyes or hear it with new ears to to see maybe what you haven't seen before. That would be quite a feat. (laughs) Um, But but I want to approach this text a little newly. So we're going to work through it just a couple of uh, verses at a time. And I want to make observations of the text and ask questions of it. See if we can't see things that we have not seen before. So uh, starting in John chapter 13, this is how it begins with verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover. So what is the Passover? Well, the Passover is an important event in Jewish history whereby God rescued the Israelites from slavery. He did that by sending this plague that killed the firstborn of every person and animal in the land of Egypt while they were slaves there. And the only way to escape this plague was to sacrifice a pure firstborn uh, lamb and to put its blood across the doorpost. And so through the blood of this pure lamb, the people were saved. And so this is the feast that they're about to go to, Jesus and his disciples. So when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God, and was going back to God. And here's where I want to pause. Let's think about this. Uh, So this, what John is doing here is giving us the background, and he's saying because of these things, Jesus is going to do what he's going to do next. So to to review, going into the Passover meal, Jesus, knowing that his time is up, knowing that he is about to be crucified, raised again, and then returned to his father who originally sent him. Knowing that Judas is about to betray him, one of his close followers and friends, knowing that the father has given him into his hands all things. Right here, I want want to look closely at that. So uh, looking back at verse 3, knowing the father had given all things into his hands. Normally when you hear something like that, had been given all things, you have to look at the context. What do you mean by all things, right? Well, here, all things is probably the most literal use of that term that has ever been used, right? What it's saying here is that Jesus was given into his hands all of creation. We know that because this is what the scriptures tell us throughout the New Testament, that through Jesus' resurrection, that was in in many senses his crowning, that because he humbled himself to the point of death, God the Father exalted him above all things and gave into his hands all of creation. 
And so he had complete authority. That's why in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew, he tells his disciples that I have been given all authority. The king of the entire universe and all of creation. Now, knowing all those things, what do you think he would do next? I mean, if you're familiar with the story, you know, but, but think about this question for a second. What would you do next, right? So knowing that you're about to suffer and die, knowing that you're a friend is about to betray you, knowing that you have complete and total control over all of creation, that it is yours to command. What do you do next? And that's what I find so surprising about this story. Because look at what Jesus next does next. In verse 4 it says, He rose from supper. He laid aside his outward outer garment, so you have these layers in, in the clothing that they wore, and he, he laid it aside. And then taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. So picture the feet of the disciples at this time. They're wearing sandals and they're walking everywhere. I mean, if you read the Gospels, you see Jesus and his disciples are walking all over Israel. And so men, that's what people did in the day. They didn't have cars. They walked. And the roads were not usually paved roads. They were dirty and messy and animals took it too. So imagine what was on their feet. And then they're going to a meal, right? And this is not a dinner table like you and I have. They're reclining on their sides and you're your head is, of course, next to, I'm not saying exactly on, but it is far nearer to the person's feet than we're used to when you're eating a meal, filled with the dirt and dust and animal waste that is on the feet that accumulates throughout the day, right? And those of you who have ever spent walking all day, you know that smell of your feet when all is said and done. It's an important job to wash people's feet before the meal. And so what happened, though, was usually the, the servant, probably even the, the lowest of the servants, was given that job. Kind of like you would give the new person at the job kind of the, the hard, the grunge, and the dirty work. Or the, the freshman coming in on the team, you get them to do the, the fetching the water and, and other things like that. Well, in a very similar situation, this is who you would expect. So in this here, you would either expect the servant of the house that they were renting, or you would expect maybe one of the disciples to clean. But instead, it's Jesus. And so as he continues, you can see that it is a strange and bizarre thing, because looking here, verse 6, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? He was confused. And so Jesus told him, he, he answered, what I'm doing you do not understand now but afterward you will understand. So Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And so Jesus answered him, if I do not wash your feet, you have no share with me. Uh, uh, sorry, let me say that again. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now think about that response for a little bit. You're probably familiar with it. You know what's coming next, but, but think about that. Peter's like, Lord, what are you doing? You shouldn't be doing this. We should be. Don't wash my feet. You'll never do this. And the response is, well, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Seems a bit extreme 
at first, right? What's going on here? Well, Jesus continues. So, uh, um, the one who is bathed, oh, sorry, skipping ahead. So, Peter uh, continued and said, Lord, do not wash my feet only, but also my hands and my head. So, he heard, all right, if, if, if Jesus doesn't wash me, I have no part with him. Well, in that case, wash all of me, right? And so, Jesus continues. The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. And so then the washing continues. He goes around to all the disciples. And in verse 12, it says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Now, on the surface, this is another bizarre question because you washed my feet. Well, what is there to understand, right? Yeah, I know what you did. You washed my feet. Well, Jesus is about to teach them that what I did, what he did in washing their feet, he was trying to teach them something more, something um, that they should take with them. So this is what it says in verse 14. Uh, sorry, verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord. You are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So what is going on here? Jesus is saying that the reason he washed their feet is he wanted to show them that I, Jesus, not me, Jesus, but Jesus, right? The Lord and teacher stooped down to wash their feet. He did the dirty job, the grunge job, the one that was supposed to be given to the servant the new person, the low of stature. And yet Jesus, the Lord and teacher of all the disciples, and therefore, because of that, of all Christians, was not too high and too mighty or too good to stoop and wash his disciples' feet. In other words, he gave them an example that if you are to be my disciple, you must follow his example, right? If you were to be Jesus' disciple, you must follow his example. So if Jesus himself is not too good to stoop down and do the lowliest of jobs, that means none of us are as well. This is a ba the background that is given to this new command that we're going to read in just a second. Jesus is demonstrating to his disciples how to serve one another in imitation of him. And, and the reason that he says, you have no part with me if I do not wash you to Peter is because of the simple truth that unless you are served by Jesus, you cannot be his disciples. Each one of us, if we are a Christian, are here because of Jesus stooping down. And be, though he was God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped but humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He became a human being 
He lived under all the indignities that being a human being in a fallen world brings with it. And then he died. Though, of all the human beings who ever lived, he was the only one who did not deserve death. But he died in our place. Because we were served by Jesus, the God-man who, who stepped out of his place of prominence and stooped down to even wash his disciples' feet. Because of that, we can be brought into God's family. All of that is leading up to his commands. What we see next in the story is we see the betrayal of Jesus by one of his closest friends. He, we go through the Lord's Supper. We see, we see his final supper with his disciples. And we see that Judas is called out as the one who will betray him. But what's interesting here, if you look at verse 28, even after Jesus sent Judas out to go betray him, he said, go do what you have to do. In verse 28, it says, now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. In other words, Judas, we expect him to betray Jesus because the story is familiar. But it was not expected among the disciples, so much so that when Jesus tells them, one of you will betray me, and it's the one that, that I dip the bread and the cup with, and then he does that with Judas, they still don't understand that Judas is going out to betray Jesus. How could he? Right? He, he, it was not suspected. This betrayal cuts deep. And Jesus, yes, fully God, but also fully human, would have experienced this deep betrayal and hurt as any of us as human beings would. And yet, with all of this on his mind, knowing that the death that he is about to suffer and the betrayal that is going on at this moment, he wants to, to teach his disciples and give them one more command. So we're going to go to verse 31. And, and for this part of Scripture, I actually do want you to read this new, uh, to stand as we read this new command from Jesus. So if you'd stand with me, I want to read it. Verse 31 says this, When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Go ahead and be seated. As we're reading along, what we see is Jesus is very aware about, uh, of what is about to happen to him. His death and his resurrection. He know that it's time for him to be glorified because he has submitted to death. And therefore, because God glorifies him, he will also glorify the Father. Right? And so his final command, his, his new command to his disciple is this. A new commandment I give to you. So, verse 34. That you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, 
you might be asking, how is this a new command? Doesn't even the Old Testament say to love, right? In fact, doesn't earlier in the gospel when Jesus is asked, what, are, what is the greatest commandment? He starts off by saying the greatest commandment is to love God with all that you are. And though there is still a hierarchy, loving God is first. He knew that the second commandment was connected to it and important. So he said, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So how is it that this is a new command? Well, let's look closely. There are two differences between the command, which goes all the way back to even Leviticus, to love your neighbor as yourself, is different from the command of Jesus. So the first one might be obvious to you. Where before we are commanded to love our neighbor as ourself, now we are commanded to love one another as Jesus loved us. In other words, this love is a much significantly, infinitely higher love. Jesus, in dying for our sins and giving us the Holy Spirit because of his death and resurrection, has enabled us to be made more and more like him. Otherwise, this love would be impossible. But it, but it is not just to love our neighbor as ourself now. It is to love just as Jesus loved us. In other words, to put it another way, how do you know when you have loved someone enough? Well, ask this question. Have I loved them to the same extent that Jesus has loved me? And if the answer is no, well, then keep, keep going, all right? Keep going. But there's another difference, and that difference is this, where it says love your neighbor. Now it says to love one another. In other words, Jesus is narrowing it down a little bit. Where we are still called to love our neighbor, in other words, anyone that God puts in our life as ourself, this is a love that is between the followers of Jesus, his disciples, those in the family of God. And you can see this pattern later on in the New Testament where it says, love all people, but first those from the body of Christ. And, and why is that? Why is it so significant that the way we love each other as Christians is an imitation of how Jesus loved us? Well, if you jump down, to the last verse that we read, it says in verse 35, it's because by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. In other words, how will people know that we are disciples of Jesus? By the way we love one another. It is one of the most visual and powerful witnesses to Jesus that we have as a church. And so the way we love each other reflects how Jesus loved us. When, when you want to tell people that Jesus died for your sins and he loves you, the way they see that is true is they see how you love your fellow Christians. And they go, okay, I don't know if I get this full God thing, but you love each other in this way, so I guess Jesus' love is, is kind of like that. And so it's incredibly important, and this is why Jesus gives this command. It, it is a reflection of how the gospel has transformed us, our witness, in other words. Right? We must, of course, share the gospel with our words, but then we have to give evidence of the gospel's power by how we love one another. 
And so this is, this is the Thursday, right? The day before he is arrested and, and crucified and dies for our sins. So you might be asking, okay, how do I celebrate this Easter season? How do I worship God for, for the incredible gift of his son and his death and his resurrection for our sake, for the forgiveness of our sins? And I think what we can do is we can go to Jesus' teachings here. And we can say, how do I celebrate the gospel? Well, by living out this command. So, so how do we do that? How do we live out this command to love one another as Jesus loved us? Well, that's where the background comes in, right? How did Jesus love us? Well, look at what he just did. On the day before he is crucified, knowing all of these things, what does he do for his disciples? Even though he is first, even though he has all authority of the entirety of creation, he stoops down and serves his disciples in love. So how do you demonstrate the love of Jesus to those in the body of well, you seek to honor those in the body, even above yourself. You look for ways that you can serve and love those in the body of Christ. You look for the jobs that no one else wants to do, those that are overlooked, those that are dirty, are tiring, are hard, so that you can show the love of Jesus to each other. And you don't do it to be celebrated or to be noticed. You do it so that Jesus is celebrated and noticed and that his love that has transformed us is made known to everyone around us. That's one way. And the other way is to recognize that Jesus loved, right? So there's, there's two contexts, the one where he served his disciples, and then the one that's shortly coming after this section of Scripture. How much did Jesus love us? Enough that he laid down his life for our sakes. He put the love of us and our good even before his own comfort and his own position and his own prominence in heaven. He stepped down and he became a human being, not laying aside his divinity. He was still fully God, but he became a human being. He suffered all the indignities of a human being. He suffered, he died, and he rose again for our sake. So what that means is, how do we love each other as Christians? We serve each other, even when it's difficult. And the other way, though, is we forgive each other, just as for Jesus forgave us. See, the context for this love that Jesus is showing is that human beings have already all betrayed God. All the way in the Garden of Eden, human beings turned their back on God and rebelled against him, and they've been doing it ever since. And yet, even as we are enemies of God... His, he sends his very son to die for us. In other words, how much are you supposed to forgive your fellow Christians and to love them when they're difficult to love and to give grace to them when they're difficult to give grace to? Only as much as Jesus has forgiven you and loved you when you were difficult to love and given grace to you when you were difficult to give grace to. Only that, right? No more. <laughs> but keep doing it until you've gone to, to at least that much. And as you forgive and as you give grace and as you give love to one another, the love of Jesus 
is made evident in your lives and the lives of your fellow Christian. And Jesus is glorified in those who are watching. And his gospel is made known and it's shown that it's powerful and transformative and more people come to the body of Christ because of it. So how do you love Jesus this Easter season? How do you worship him this Easter season? We're about to take communion. And one of the things we're warned about as we take communion, is do not take it if you are in sin. And, and, and elsewhere in Jesus, uh, when he is given the Sermon on the Mount, he actually says that if you have something against, if you are making an offering, uh, and at that point realize that your brother has something against you, leave your offering on the altar and go first be reconciled. So before we take communion, what I want to ask you to do is to ask, ask this question of yourself. How have I been loving my brothers and sisters in Christ? Have I been serving them? Am I holding a grudge against anyone? Does anyone have anything against me where I've sinned against them? If so, I want you to ask God for forgiveness. Go and be reconciled and then come and take communion. Or at least take that first step. Reach out. Let them know, hey, I want to talk. Seek forgiveness. Seek reconciliation and keep moving forward, because the way we love each other is important. It's the new command that Jesus gave on the night before he died. So with that, though, I want to close us in prayer, um, and then I want to ask those who are serving communion to come on up. So, Father, thank you so much for all that your son Jesus has done for us. And I pray that we would meditate on the way he served and loved us and sacrificed uh, of his very life to forgive us of our sins. And I hope we take that to heart and through your spirit you make us more loving people so that the love of Jesus is made known. Um, Help us uh, to remember any sin in our life right now, Father. Help us to see in any ways we have not loved your family well and help us to seek to make that right this weekend as we're celebrating the gospel of your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Um, and, and every time we do this, we do this in remembrance of the gospel that Jesus has brought for us. So um, in reading from... 1 Corinthians uh, uh, is where we're going to be today. So if you want to turn with me, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll see instructions on the Lord's Supper. Um, But this is a time to remember the gospel and experience it in a tangible way. Uh, So what I want to ask you guys to do is if you would take the bread, if you would pass it out. Uh, Hold on to the bread until I read the passage of Scripture, and then...
1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus to give up his body and uh, unto death so that we might be forgiven for our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Next, I'm going to pass out. We're going to pass out the... Verse 25 says, In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, 
This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Take and drink. Father, we, with the rest of the body of Christ since Jesus um, was resurrected, celebrate the gospel together. And we remember it in hopes, knowing that the world around us will be restored, that Jesus will return again. And because of his death, because of his resurrection, because of uh, the forgiveness that he bought with this new covenant, all things might be restored. And those who put their faith in him will be able to live forever with you in a perfect and restored relationship. And we thank you for that. And we praise you for that. And we pray. And I pray that the remembrance of this will encourage us and spur us on to greater and greater love and imitation of our Lord and teacher Jesus. And it's in his name that we come to you in prayer. Amen. You are dismissed.